This episode is sponsored by GovX, a company I've used for several years now and wish I'd used for even longer. If you are a member of police, fire, EMS, corrections, nursing, a hospital setting doctor, and members of the military, and you are not registered with GovX, you are simply wasting your money. A free registration with GovX marries you with a multitude of companies that are offering our professions discount. So by registering at govx.com for free, you will then have a lifetime membership and you can shop for the very same things and save money. I've saved a huge amount of money buying sunglasses, I've bought knives, I've bought clothes, and even concert tickets on there. Another area I love about this company is GovX Gives Back, where they will raise money for different foundations every single month. And with this being September, they have a 9-11 memorial patch that raises money for firefighter aid. So if you're active duty, if you are retired, or if you're a volunteer, you are eligible for this membership. And on top of the savings that you will get by being a member, GovX is reaching out to you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, to offer you an extra discount. If you spend 50, that's five zero dollars on your first order and use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, you will save an additional $15. So $15 off your first order of $50. So visit govx.com, G-O-V-X.com, register, and then be a member for life and continue to save over and over again. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 wants to reach out to you, the audience, and offer you a discount, which I will get to in a moment. As with each episode, I want to highlight one of their products. And I think an area that really needs to be discussed is uniforms. So most of us listening to this podcast are in some sort of uniform profession. And 5.11 were founded on clothing the tactical athletes. So they went to the member of military, the police officer, the firefighter, the EMT, and asked them what do they need to function at the highest level when it comes to their clothing. So their uniforms are reverse engineered from the user back to the manufacturer. Another observation I've made in several departments I've worked at is that we end up with lockers full of worn, faded uniforms. And what I found with the 5.11 uniform that I wore in California was that wasn't the case. They lasted several years and some of the job shirts and jackets lasted way longer than that. So longevity and cost efficiency is also another element to this as well. Yet another layer to this is the female tactical athlete. So they realized that men and women, surprise, surprise, are not shaped the same way. So they started designing uniforms accordingly to fit the female tactical athlete and allow her to be able to move efficiently. So, so many reasons why I advocate this company. On top of all their other great products, the Norris sneaker, which I think is a great alternative to a station boot, the AMP pack or missions backpack, and then their civilian clothes as well, their shorts, their jeans, so, so comfortable, so user-friendly as well. So 5.11 are offering you a discount of 15% off all of your purchases. So use the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com. That's 511tactical.com. And to hear even more about 5.11, their mission, their products, and their genesis, listen to my interview with their CEO and co-founder, Francisco Morales, on episode 338 of this podcast. Welcome to episode 367 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute pleasure to welcome on the show Travis Joyner. 
Now, Travis is a veteran law enforcement officer, a jiu-jitsu black belt, and a member of the Sheepdog Response Team, joining my previous guests, Tim Kennedy and Jeffro Mullinax, in teaching both civilians and law enforcement in both weapons and unarmed combat. So we discuss a host of topics, obviously some of the current events when it comes to training, when it comes to hands-on arrest and control, jiu-jitsu in law enforcement, martial arts in law enforcement, and a host of other topics. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast to make it more visible for people looking for a project like this. And this is a free library for you to use however you would like, individually, within an organization. So all I ask in return is that you pay it forward and share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth that needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Travis Joyner. Enjoy. So Travis, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking some time out your evening away from your family to come on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's uh, it's an honor to be here. I'm glad to be on. Beautiful. Where on planet Earth are we finding you today? So I am in Austin, Texas. Well, maybe just slightly outside of Austin, Texas, but close enough. All right. So starting from the very beginning, um, where were you actually born? And tell me about your family unit, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah, so um, I am a native Austinite. I was born and raised in Austin, Texas. I've lived here uh, my entire life. Uh, you know, I've, I've been in some surrounding communities, but in the Austin area my entire life. Um, I have one brother, obviously two parents. Um, my mom was a teacher, so she has a you know an education background. She was a high school teacher, taught math, which is not my strong suit in any way. Uh, my dad was a police officer, so I ended up uh, following more in his footsteps. That was a little more along my lines than math. Beautiful. What about um, athletics when you were at school? What were the other sports that you played? Um, so let's see. I played basketball in uh, junior high and high school. I played football for one year in uh, junior high when I was way too small to be playing football. And uh, figured out that wasn't me. So definitely more more of a basketball guy. Brilliant. All right. Well, then being a native Austonian or Austinite, whatever the right term is, um, <laughs> my brother-in-law lives there now, but they're originally from Ohio. My uh, in-laws actually live in San Antonio. Um, but I, I see some amazing people moving there. Tim Kennedy, Joe Rogan, um, Tim Ferriss. And I know there's a, there's a pretty solid special operations community that's moved there too. So what have you seen from someone that was born and bred there for the evolution of that city specifically? Oh man, the city has changed so much. Um, you know, it used to be a small, sleepy college town, really low population. I mean, it was always the capital and it was always kind of the the weird place in Austin, but you know, the, especially the last 10 years or so, you know, and especially the last year, two, three, you know, the population has just grown tremendously. And, uh, you know, that brings good and bad, you know, a lot of the, the little cultural things in Austin, some of the, some of the small businesses, you know, have kind of gone under and closed, but it's also brought a lot of good things. Like you said, the people moving here, 
Um, you know, from the gyms opening up, like it's becoming a, a hotbed for jujitsu and, and, you know, all these companies and restaurants and the entertainment industry. So uh, it's brought a lot of growth to the city and it, it has just changed dramatically even, you know, in my lifetime here. Now, it seems like it's an eclectic blend as well. Like, there's definitely a kind of hipster element to it. But then, like you said, a very um, tactical uh, presence there as well. So what have you seen as far as those two? You know, how did they even find themselves there and how do they intermingle? Yeah, it, you know, it's funny. Me, uh, We were talking with Tim about this the other day. Um, you know, how many people from California come here? And I think, you know, uh, Texas in general offers a lot of appeal to people, you know, for uh, a variety of reasons. Um, you know, the laws here and, and gun laws and, you know, a lot of other things um, appeal to people. But Austin, you know, is like a little bit like California. It's, it kind of offers, um, you know, a lot of the, the different dynamics that some of the other cities in Texas don't. So it's it's I think it's kind of a, a happy medium for a lot of people. You know, they get to live in Texas, but you know, Austin's a little bit different from the, the rest of Texas. And a lot of people like the, uh, you know, just the scene here, the music, the food, the entertainment, the sports, you know, all that stuff. Absolutely. All right. Well, then back to your younger years, when you were in high school, what were your career aspirations back then? Oh, I'm, you know, I'm one of those people, uh, you know, like I said, my my dad was a police officer. So early on when I was a kid, you know, that's always something that I thought I wanted to do. But when I got into high school, I, um, you know, it, it wasn't really like that strong of a desire for me. I didn't really know what I wanted. Um, you know, I started looking at different things. I, you know, I was physical. I looked at personal training and, and some different areas. But, you know, I was definitely one of those people, even through college, you know, I, I started going to college, just taking basics and not really knowing, you know, what I what I wanted to do until, I just kind of came to that point and, you know, um, the department I'm at now is hiring and, you know, I just kind of jumped the gun on that and decided to go for it. But it was, it wasn't really like, uh, something, you know, that I had set in my mind from, uh, at least in my teenage years. Well, you mentioned that you weren't strong in math, which, uh, I can, can align with completely. Um, <laughs> I was a straight C student all through school when you actually pulled the trigger to enter law enforcement. How did you find your academics within those classes? Um, I, I did pretty well. And, you know, because with me, if it's something that interests me, you know, I can uh, put a little more focus into it than um, things that don't probably a weakness of mine. But, you know, I was um, I did well in, in the academy and with academics um, as it related to, you know, my job for sure. Beautiful. Yeah, I can relate completely. I, I was kind of like an A student in Fire Academy and, and like I said, C in regular. So I think that's a that's a interesting perspective, though, if you are in an academic realm and you're not doing well and you don't have a desire, maybe there's another arena that you can enter where you will be a lot more driven. Yeah, I mean, you have to you have to find something that you're interested in. You know, it'd be, obviously, you're a strong person and there's people that can put that energy into, you know, things that maybe aren't their favorite topic. But for me, uh, it definitely helped to have a, a personal interest in the topic. Absolutely. Well, you, so you entered law enforcement, which came first, your first martial arts class or the, the police academy? Um, so I did martial arts as a kid. Um, you know, I was a huge, uh, you know, I was the kid going to Blockbuster every weekend and renting a martial arts movie, watching, you know, Bruce Lee and 
Chuck Norris and John Claude Van Damme and Steven Seagal, you know, all those uh, all those movies. So I love martial arts, you know, as a kid, and I always had an interest in it. Um, back then, you know, at least in Austin, um, Taekwondo was what my parents put me in. And, um, you know, that's where I got my start. And um, I uh, so I did that from from a real early age, you know, and that, that's that's kind of where I started there. Okay, was that ITF or WTF? Uh, that was WTF. Yeah, so so was it a shock when you moved to your next art that allowed punches to the face <laughs> that you've been taught to have your hands down by your side the whole time? Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> it's funny, you know, and, and I, um, you know, the Taekwondo, especially as a kid, you know, it, it helped me develop a lot of like physical attributes you know my flexibility my agility my balance um you know being able to kind of use my legs with a little bit better dexterity so it you know it had a lot of benefits but at the same time yeah it gave me some bad habits that you know when i started sparring and you know doing muay thai and mma that uh definitely took me a while to to overcome those things yeah absolutely i was talking to uh sebastian lavoie who's a canadian um sergeant major in the royal mountain police and he said that his journey through martial arts was a constant humility and i i can align completely i, I did taekwondo then shotokan then back to itf taekwondo and i mean it, literally every single time i moved to a different style it was like i was you know back to square one and whatever I'd learned. I and mean, like you said, there were so many redeeming elements, but the weaknesses were always exploited by that next R. So by the time you got to, like you said, MMA style, you know, Muay Thai and Jiu Jitsu, you're almost like, okay, I give up. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. All right. So then what, what arts were you doing when you entered the police academy? Um, so, you know, I did, I did Taekwondo, like I said, as a kid and, um, you know, kind of through high school, I, I wasn't really doing anything towards the end of high school. Um, I got out of high school and, you know, I wasn't playing sports and, um, I wasn't really, you know, I was working out a little bit, but my, my physical health was just not really on point. And, um, you know, so I started looking for something and I think it was just a random conversation with some friends and they were talking about a martial arts gym. And, um, you know, I kind of decided to kill two birds with one stone. You know, I'll give myself, like I said, something I enjoy, something I look forward to and I can get a good workout at the same time. So there was a, a Krav Maga gym, you know, kind of just taught like self-defense. And uh, I went in there and did that for a while. That ended up leading me to do, um, you know, more to an MMA gym, kind of the things I favored. So I ended up doing uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and um, the gym, pretty kind of more of a, a fight gym, an MMA gym. So we, you know, we did Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but it incorporated a lot of wrestling and a lot of judo early on. And, um, you know, striking also kind of a blend of uh, boxing and Muay Thai kickboxing. So, you know, I had a pretty solid base in uh, jiu-jitsu, Muay Thai, and boxing by the time I ever went to the police academy. Okay, now, with you being a tactical athlete, with the defensive tactics element, um, there's people who have been on the show like Greg Armanson that actually really like Krav Maga for law enforcement. So, what is your observation of that particular art for civilians and then the application for law enforcement? Um. So I, I think a lot depends on the type of gym. The, the thing with Krav Maga is, you know, there's 
there's a lot of different levels to it and there's a lot of different gyms doing a lot of different things. You know, we have some gyms locally that, you know, are sparring, they're grappling, they're wrestling, they're, they're incorporating it, you know, um, and they seem to do pretty well. And then, you know, obviously I've seen some other gyms that, um, kind of have a much lower level of, um, proficiency in what they're doing. They don't really do any live resistance training, any sparring, any grappling. Um, so, you know, as far as the art, I think, it, it depends, you know, a lot on, on what type of gym it is. And as far as, um, you know, application for law enforcement, I think you kind of have to break that down into two different topics because, you know, as a police officer, when we talk about defensive tactics, there's there's almost really two sides to that. There's an arrest and control side where, you know, we're, we're learning how to, you know, use positions and holds and, you know, gain positions where we can control someone and immobilize them and cuff them. And then there's more of like the self-defense aspect of being able to, you know, stay mobile on your feet, um, you know, use strikes to create space, um, things like that. So when it comes to a system of, you know, being able to strike and and use kind of like more traditional self-defense methods, you know, it can have benefit. I mean, you know, the, the punches and kicks, and elbows, whether you call them Krav Maga or Muay Thai or boxing or whatever, you know, they're, they're very similar. So, you know, it would just come down to how you're training and how you're implementing it. Brilliant. All right. Um, so when you entered the academy, you had by that point a background in, in several of the different arts. What did your defensive tactics training look like as a recruit in that particular agency? Um, so my experience with it, uh, wasn't really a, a positive or a good one overall. Um, you know, I, it's funny cause I came in and, and I was so excited about it. Um, you know, I'm like, okay, I know martial arts. I, I fought before I, I've done this stuff. Now I want to see, you know, like the police tactics and, uh, you know, how they apply it to law enforcement. And, um, really at the time, you know, and, and they were working with, with the knowledge base they had and, um, you know, doing, doing the best with what they had at the time. But, um, it, it just, a lot of it wasn't realistic. Um, we didn't have any, any tr- sort of live training, you know, there was no sparring, there was no wrestling, there was no ground fighting with anything other than, you know, a compliant person. So, you know, we didn't really get to pressure test the techniques and even me being, you know, at the time I was a, a purple belt in jujitsu and I'd fought and I would have, I would have, a very difficult time implementing some of like the takedowns and small joint manipulation against, you know, even someone smaller, less experienced than me. So, um, you know, a lot of the training just was kind of stuck in a, an older era and hadn't really evolved when I went through. Yeah. Now what, what have you seen or, you know, what were you able to do to start changing that? Because I, obviously I attended, um, Sheepdog response with Tim and, and, and Dennis and all those guys when they came here to Florida, to Ocala, my ha- hometown of all places. Um, it completely opened my eyes. And again, I did this civilian class. I'm not a law enforcement officer. I'm a firefighter. So, but I've had a history of, of, of martial arts. And it was amazing when you added that realism element, whether it was weapons, whether it was just scrambles, whatever it was, um, how it, completely even the playing field for anyone that wasn't as you mentioned you know a pretty high level um practitioner so from that initial problem how were you able to influence um you know a change in that particular area um so there's a couple things to that you know one like the 
the, the style of striking and the, the style of takedowns and the, you know, some of the techniques that were more older, you know, traditional karate moves or maybe even, you know, Japanese jujitsu, which, um, you know, are just kind of sometimes difficult to pull off on a resistant opponent. We, we've kind of over the years, um, you know, adopted and changed the style a little more to jujitsu and wrestling and Muay Thai and, clinching so the style in and of itself definitely has changed since you know I've, I've been a part of the program and have had some say in it so that's you know one big area the other thing is like you said we you know we make it a point to pressure test things now um you know if it like when i went through they you know they taught us strikes they taught us punches and kicks and knees and elbows and the actual techniques weren't bad you know they they taught you an effective way to throw those things but unless you've had some type of application against a live resistant opponent, then you really don't understand your timing or your distance or your range or like being able to effectively block or strike or, you know, utilize that. So, you know, we've added in a lot of um, pressure testing and, and it doesn't always have to be against full resistance or, you know, a full on fight. But, you know, when we learn a block of instruction, we take it and we're like, okay, let's, let's try it. Whether that's sparring whether that's some type of clinching, whether that's, you know, takedown defense, whether that's ground fighting, whether that's weapon retention, you know, we open it up and, you know, we try the moves against a variety of body types. So people can kind of understand, you know, where they stand and what they're able to apply and what they're not able to apply. And, um, you know, the other thing is, is I really focus a lot on concept-based learning where, you know, tech, there are there are good and bad techniques. There are, you know, higher percentage techniques. But at the end of the day, you know, any technique has the potential to fail. And, you know, if a student understands what they're trying to accomplish or, you know, what their what the concept is of what they're trying to do and how it can work, then it allows them to improvise and come up with a solution when in a real world, you know, there can be so many variables you know, and fighting and how that goes. So probably those three things are the, the biggest changes that have kind of happened over the years. Yeah. And it's, it's a, it's a theme that I hear a lot from, you know, Tim and all these other people, Jeffro that have come on the show that either have a military or law enforcement background. And it totally applies to the fire service as well. We, we've seen, or I've seen in my very short career, 14 years, um, a kind of regression of, the realism of training of the intensity of training and i think part of that is you know the the human resources input and and sometimes and i'd be very fair as well sometimes even the unions some of the poorer unions work against you know intensity training standards that kind of thing so how have you been able to push back against some of those entities that are trying to stop you being more realistic in training so that you can maintain that level yeah, you know, and, and that's a great point because what what you've seen in law enforcement in, you know, is kind of a pendulum and that's in a lot of things in life, right? But, you know, early on in law enforcement, um, I mean, they would, they had hard training and they would, um, you know, put boxing gloves on and have cadets basically fight each other full contact and fight instructors full contact. Um you know, like, like DPS, our state police here, you know, they, they were notorious for, you know, how hard their training was and, you know, the, the level they put into it and the intensity, but, you know, they had some people die in training at some point, you know, like from head injuries and things like that. And injuries are always going to be a factor. So I think we kind of went from, you know, 
really intense hardcore training to the point that it got a little bit unsafe and people were getting injured. And then, you know, like you said, people come in and that gets canceled, that gets cut out and you can't do that. So then the pendulum swings and we're doing training with no resistance, no sparring, and it's just kind of going through the motion. So, you know, I, I think it's just one, you have to be realistic based on the block with, you know, what, how safe or how much intensity can we realistically put into this where there's training value, but we're not going to be hurt. You know, we have to take proactive steps when it comes to equipment and things to mitigate injuries, because that's always going to be an issue. So uh, I think it's really about finding that line of we have to push it enough so that people are getting training value and understanding the realism, but it's just not realistic that, you know, we can have people fight all out or just completely go at it and not have, you know, a multitude of injuries that are going to get the, uh, the training shut down. So we, you know, just on our end, we really have to police ourselves. You know, if it's, if it's sparring, then we set an intensity, you know, whether that's, Hey, we're only going to punch to the head at 20%, 30%, whatever it is. And you really have to keep an eye on that, you know, so people aren't getting head injuries, broken noses, you know, and grappling, or clenching, you know, we have to put certain safety elements in place. Like we're not going to slam each other. We're not going to do this. Well, even though those things could happen in a fight, the the risk versus reward, you know, just isn't going to be sustainable in a, a training environment like that. Yeah. Well, as as a side note, I, I know that you actually had some MMA MMA fights as well. Uh, something I've heard with, with Joe and some of his guests he's had on the show. He's had a lot of you know fighters on there, and then some of the people on this show too. I've seen a big trend in the martial arts world where there's less, um, uh, what's the right word? The, the, the level of contact is reduced in the gym where it used to be like, you know, and I even I did back in LA, I had, uh, attended Shootboxes uh, Academy there and it was Fight Club. I mean, you fought all shapes yeah. and sizes. It was full contact, you know, everything to try and knock each other out. And, you know, I had perforated eardrums and broken nose and all kinds of stuff. And I look back now and go, I really didn't learn that much because I was just trying to survive as a 165 pound, you know, skinny Englishman. Um, and I've heard, you know, Greg Jackson, some of these other people talking about even in, in the, uh, the gyms now, they're pulling the reins a little bit on the intensity of sparring so they can keep that technical element and then they can throw it all down when they go into the, into the cage itself. Yeah, absolutely. I've, you know, I've heard a lot of fighters talk about that. I mean, you know, especially when it comes to striking, you know, like, um, I was just sparring with Tim the other day, but you know, it was super controlled. Like, you know, we had this same discussion, like one, you know, the, the head trauma and the, the injuries you receive, you know, we're starting to see more and more of the cumulative effects long-term, you know, that that can have on people. And, you know, you just have to question the value in it. I mean, there, there is a, an aspect of mental toughness, you know, I think if you, if you want to fight professionally or you want to step into a cage or, you, you know, you really want to, even for self-defense, like you, you do need to feel what that's like to have someone come at you with intensity and, you know, with speed and power and strength, but doing that on a daily basis, you know, the same thing I spent years, you know, fighting in the gym where, you know, I'm leaving with headaches and, um, I, I feel that I get more out of a lower intensity technical training. You know, I can, as long as my timing and my distance and my rhythm and, and my footwork and everything's on point, it's very easy to add power into my strikes. You know, 
just like I can recognize when someone hit me that, you know, had they actually put power into that strike, you know, I'm, I'm honest with myself. I'm like, okay, that would have been bad, you know, if this person actually threw the punch. So I've definitely seen that trend and I definitely um, agree with it. You just get so much more out of more technical training. Yeah. Well, I mean, even you mentioned Tim, I was over in Austin, I think it was October last year. Jeffro invited me and I got to roll with, with Jeffro, with Tim. And I think, you know, as, as he always posts this room full of killers, I'm pretty sure that there were some, you know, some very high level, um, jujitsu practitioners, but in all the time I've been doing it and I'm only a, a blue belt. I've been a very kind of on off student when it comes to that particular art. It was by far my favorite role because these people could have all murdered me within the first 60 seconds, but <laughs> it wasn't a fight. And, and I, I find that's the issue I have in where I live at the moment is there's a couple of good gyms, but most of us are all white belts. So it ends up being a fight, you know, a, a muscle versus relaxing, flowing, learning the techniques. And, and, you know, like you said, coming out with, with, uh, with a learning experience rather than, Oh, I won that fight, but you really didn't learn anything. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, it, it is a little safer in grappling. You know, they always say, you know, grappling versus striking. Grappling, you can train at a little higher intensity um, without, you know, the, the head trauma or the, the superficial injuries, at least. But, you know, it does still take a toll on your body, you know, grappling at a really high percentage. And then, like you said, the more important thing is, you know, there's different ways to approach training at different times. But, you know, if, if you're looking to win instead of learn every round, you're going to be very stagnant in your in your progress because you're going to just stick to, you know, your your best moves and you're not really going to progress near as fast if, as if your mindset was just to learn every time you're in there. Absolutely. Well, back to the, the law enforcement side then. What are some of the tools that you use to allow a slightly higher level of contact without beating each other up? Do you use spear gear or any, any of those kind of uh, equipment lines to to try and create realism and reduce injury at the same time? Um, yeah, we have, you know, we have a broad range of equipment. Um, we have some Spartan suits that we use um, that have the helmets. Um, you know, we have really thick mats. We utilize some, some thick mats. Um, and we have, you know, the larger, like they call the red man suits. I don't even know what brand those are. Really thick ones. And, you know, it's different ones are different, have different benefits. You know, the the more padding, the, the thicker it is, the better you're protected from strikes, kind of the harder people can go. But at the same time, your mobility is limited. Um, you know, they're they're heavy. They, they get hot. They're tiring. And your mobility is limited. So the Spartan suits have been pretty good for us. You know, we've... Uh, We've utilized those and we've kind of tried out some different stuff over the years. But yeah, the, the safety equipment's definitely necessary. Right. So kind of tangenting off on, on that subject then, we are seeing at the moment obviously some pretty horrific examples where either a, a police officer has died and, you know, possibly their physical ability has come into practice or, as we've seen on the other side of the coin, there's been some abuse, some lack of... Um, good solid defensive tactics that have resulted in a civilian dying so without loading the question what is your what have you seen as a veteran police officer and you know a second degree black belt in jiu-jitsu and what are some of the things you think um you know the profession can do to improve uh, you know the overall outcome on both sides well 
you know, with, with training in general, right, is um, a huge part of that. And, you know, I think as a profession, as a whole, we're just not training enough and as often as we should. And there's so many benefits that come with it. You know, when I look at the officers, you know, take take jujitsu, for example, if you just do jujitsu, you know, it can put you under physical stress and put you in an uncomfortable environment where you're tired and you have to solve a problem and you have to come up with a good solution and think your way through that problem. And that benefit alone, I think, is and, you know, the same can be applied to stand up sparring or striking martial arts. Right. I kind of have to be in that pocket where punches are flying. I'm having to remain calm. I'm having to take in information. I'm having to come up with a solution and think under stress. So, you know, striking and grappling martial arts can offer that in different senses, kind of at different speeds, though. Um, I think that is the number one ability. When I when I see officers that train, um, when they're in good physical condition and they, they train regularly, when I see them put in stressful situations where they're having to make a quick decision, their overall stress level and anxiety and their seems to be lower and their cognitive ability seems to be higher. So they just tend to make better decisions under stress based on, you know, the information they're presented with as opposed to, you know, fear or some type of, you know, just instinctual response, you know, having a different part of the brain take over and kind of hijack your response and we're just responding. So the, the mental side of it is huge. And then, you know, outside of that, the other thing I see is so many of these situations that, you know, escalate to a tragic end, whether that's, you know, uh, again, like you said, um, you know, an officer being hurt or killed or whether that's an officer making the wrong decision and, you know, force is applied when it shouldn't be or there's better options. When you when you're able to take control of a situation early on and just really control and dominate that, that stops so many of these situations from escalating. Um, so that's where the, you know, the physical tools of being trained come into play. Um, you know, we, we see that time and time again, where something starts as a simple arrest and, you know, the officer essentially loses control of the situation. And then it just spirals out of control when, if we would have just been able to, you know, handle things early on, it never would have even gotten to that point where, you know, those terrible things are happening. Yeah. Well, you touched on training. I want to go to the, the strength and conditioning side as well for a moment. So, again, going back to Tim, I know we're kind of referring to him a lot, but he's always posting the horrendous workouts that he and, you know, the other guys he trains with put themselves through all the time. Um, and I've always talked about the same kind of thing with CrossFit or Strongman, whatever it is, that that's another place that you can get really, really fucking miserable, you know, really uncomfortable and have to suffer through it and get through it. And, and, and there's the physical hardening of the body, but there's also that mental hardening of the body too, putting yourself through those crucibles. So what's your philosophy on the strength and conditioning side in law enforcement? Um, yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that, you know being able to push yourself through a hard workout, the, the discipline required, um, that's absolutely a factor in it. Um, you know, our, our current uh, model is more of a CrossFit model. Um, that's what the cadets get is uh, CrossFit. You know, it's, it's changed over the years. Um, that's the current model. I, um, you know, me personally, I try to stick to, um, 
heavier lifting. And then, um, I do a lot of like higher, high interval cardio hill sprints, uh, treadmill interval sprints. So I kind of try and keep a anaerobic conditioning level high along with baseline strength. And then some type of baseline cardio, like running or swimming or things like that is, you know, kind of my personal approach. Now, what have you seen about the combination of the two? Cause it's something that I talked with, with Sebastian again, like I was saying before, to me, to my very, you know, non-law enforcement, um, you know, uh, civilian eyes, it appears from what I've seen that if you are confident in your hands-on skills and you are, you are physically fit, so you look like you can handle yourself as well, those seem like powerful tools to, to allow you to de-escalate a situation purely with words or, you know, maybe some hands-on stuff. But what have you seen as far as a correlation between ability and a reduction in having to use that force yeah that that's huge uh, i'm glad you brought that up you know um what you know you, you consider the dynamics of law enforcement a lot of them don't have what i call a preset outcome you know meaning some people have in their mind hey if you know the police stop me today i'm gonna run or if the police try and stop me i'm gonna fight or you know there there's someone that's wanted for murder or bank robbery right and they already have in their mind that they're gonna you know shoot it out with the police and you know we do deal with that dynamic but a lot of our situations you know it's kind of that person's assessment of what they can or can't do so you know your physical appearance and how you carry yourself and how capable you look can to a huge degree um absolutely reduce the number of incidents you get into you know people size you up and they look at you and they look at your physicality and um, that's going to be a factor. You know, I've had people tell me, you know, uh, it's funny, you know, I'll see someone looking around when I'm talking to them, you know, I'm seeing the signs like they're going to run from me and, um, they don't end up doing it. And I'll ask them later, Hey, you know, over there, you're about to run, weren't you? And they're like, yeah, but I knew you'd catch me, you know, <laughs> like, so, <laughs> you know, people absolutely will size you up and, uh, take that into consideration. And, then you talked about the confidence. You know, I, I always say confidence is something that's hard to fake, you know, especially when you're you're dealing with individuals who are very good at reading body language and reading social dynamics and kind of, you know, being able to fake the funk is hard to do with individuals like that. So having true confidence um, will take you a long way in dealing with people. And it, it, it also helps you avoid what we call being badge heavy. You know, some people are they're, um, you know, they overdo it with their, their, um, actions and how they carry themselves. And they're really, you know, puffing out their feathers because the truth is they're not confident in their abilities and they're a little over the top with it. And that in and of itself, you know, can escalate situations. So I think that's a huge factor in, uh, reducing overall, you know, encounters like that. Now, the same kind of application, but with civilians, have you seen that that is a good deterrent for the average person in the community to be a little bit more of a sheepdog and a little bit less of a target for some of the turds in the world? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, and there, there's different dynamics to violence and, and why they occur. But if you're looking at it from a, you know, a predatory dynamic, um, someone, you know, just looking for an easy target or an easy victim, right? They don't want to fight. They don't want, um, you know, someone who's going to give them trouble because 
when they have options, they're always going to pick the easiest option, you know, and there's, there's been studies where, you know, um, they'll show people that are in prison for, you know, violent crimes like murder, robbery, sexual assault, things like that. They'll show them videos of like, you know, a crowd of people or a group of people walking and ask them to pick, you know, who their victim would be. And, you know, oftentimes they'll all select the same one or two in those type videos. So, you know, yeah, just not looking like an easy target being, you know, having good situational awareness, looking like you're physically capable, looking like you're confident, having the ability to look people in the eyes that can go a huge way for every, or, you know, has the potential to uh, help you avoid a lot of bad situations. Brilliant. Well, I want to talk about the civilian side of sheepdog in a little bit, but Switching focus to weapons. I just saw a horrendous video this morning. I didn't even share it because it, I mean, it, it's, it's absolutely awful, but, um, I think it was Mitch Aguilar that shared it, but it was the shooting. I know at least one officer was killed. I don't know if both of them were, um, of a traffic stop and they were having problems getting this guy out. He was already legs were out on the driver's side and they had an arm each, but for some reason, I don't know if he was incredibly strong or what it was. But they couldn't get him out, and at some point, one arm got free. He reached inside, grabbed a pistol, and shot both of them. And I believe the camera that we were watching through, the officer was probably killed immediately because there wasn't even any breathing going on. Um, so tell me some of the the things that you've seen, the trends when it comes to weapons training in law enforcement, and again, you know, some of the areas that maybe we can help these agencies improve. Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a really important dynamic. I, I, I did see that video. I believe it was uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, if it's the same one we're talking about. Um, so, you know, we, as law enforcement trainers, you know, we try and break down, you know, it's, I mean, these videos are sad, they're tragic, but, you know, we try and learn from them the dynamic that leads up to this. And, you know, one of the, the most dangerous things for law enforcement is being in that super close proximity with someone because, you know, by nature of our job, we're required, you know, to kind of move into that hands-on range and, you know, trying to affect a physical arrest and someone accessing a gun, you know, in that close of proximity is always going to have an advantage through, you know, action is faster than reaction and then just through the close proximity, they don't really have to be a great shooter to um, deal with that. So I think, you know, one of the things in law enforcement, and we've talked about this in the sheepdog law enforcement classes, is really understanding the, the distance you're at and what your response should be based on that distance. Meaning, you know, historically in law enforcement, we're taught that, you know, having time, space, distance, reactionary gap is our friend, but kind of understanding also that our response is going to be different when we're 15 feet away versus we're, we're in that close dynamic. So we spend, you know, and, and this is a fairly new block, you know, that we've implemented. Um, we have the cadets do that in scenario based training where they're, they're dealing with someone, whether it's already in contact range or just within arm length. And that person reaches for a gun, reaches for a knife and let them based on their body type and their experience, and their skill set determine, you know, whether they should try and create distance or whether they should use some type of empty hand control. And that's not something I see a lot of. Um, I think it's a fairly new trend in law enforcement. And, you know, like I said, with that, we let them get pretty, um, you know, it's, it's not scripted. It's, hey, you know, this person's going to try and access a weapon. And they, they learn some concepts and principles and techniques. 
And I think um, across the board, we need to be doing more of that training because, you know, uh, just being able to keep control of the hands and keep them visible and um, have a response for when we recognize they're reaching, you know, to areas that weapons are kept should definitely be a big part that, um, you know, I hope more agencies start adopting. Yeah, well, you mentioned um, sheepdog, so let's let's kind of expand on that. So I did the class, like I said, the civilian side here was amazed. I mean, I've been a lifelong martial artist, was completely humbled, you know, a, a complete white, white belt beginner when it came to the firearm. So I was pulling mags out of my pocket. <laughs> it was an absolute cluster, but, you know, it was a great learning experience, and I have grown from that. Um, so for the people listening that don't know what sheepdog response is, if you could kind of describe the two kind of arms to that project and then um you know some of the the actually we'll just talk about the sheepdog first and I'll, I'll expand on that after so i don't give you 12 questions to answer at once yeah so um sheepdog response is a, a company that um provides training to both uh, civilians as well as you know law enforcement military occupational members um and it kind of bridges the gap in a, a few areas. You know, there, it's a big industry and there's a lot of good people teaching firearms. There's a lot of uh, people teaching, you know, martial arts and self-defense. But it kind of brings those two things together into what we deal with in a modern era, you know, which is um, being in a fight involving a gun, involving a knife, things like that. And understanding, you know awareness and you know how we can put ourselves in the best position to deal with that so in those courses you know we spend half the day in a mat room um, learning techniques and concept for close quarters weapon-based fighting and then we spend the other half of the day on the range how to actually employ the firearm effectively so it's a pretty cool uh pretty cool dynamic and there's also a uh especially lately, a, a lot of situational awareness and mindset training that's uh, being put into it to help people understand that. Right. So the next question, what? we'll start with the negatives first. What are some of the bad things that you're seeing as you're going around these agencies, as you're putting on classes through Sheepdog? Um, what are some of the, the poor um, environments that you're seeing in some of these police agencies? Um. Man, you know, the, the thing about law enforcement in the U.S. is, um, you know, it just there's such a broad gap in it. You know, some departments are, are really on board and they're, they're doing a lot of good training and they're doing the right things and they're, they're giving people good equipment. And then other places, you know, they, the officers really don't get uh, much beyond a very basic level of training. They're not given opportunities for follow up training. Um, you know, the, the equipment and the resources they're given are very limited. So it's, it's really a, a mixed bag. You know, when I train, I, I meet some very good, very well-trained officers that, you know, have obviously been put through some good training. And then I see some and, you know, no fault of their own. They, they went through their academy. They've given, they've gotten what their department gives them. And it's just um, sometimes outdated, sometimes unrealistic training. Um but again, I think across the board, we're just not doing enough of it. There's just not enough training going on. Um, physical fitness is always an issue too. You know, um, when you, like you, you said, you've been through the course, so you understand the, uh, you know, how tiring that is to, you know, fight with weapons and people. I think it's, it's eye opening for them to see kind of where they stand and especially officers, 
to understand, you know, where they really stand in a, in a fight like that. And it can be humbling and eye-opening. Yeah, well, you mentioned humbling. So I want to kind of tack on something that I spoke to Tim with. I think it was our second interview we did together, which was after Sheepdog came to town. Um, the civilian side actually was very well attended. And I believe that we had pretty much everyone come back for the second of the, you know, the physical days. Um, when you guys came to town, the Parkland shooting had just happened. Uh, you had some amazing people that anonymously um, donated a huge amount of scholarship money to put first responders through. So I was on that scholarship. There's a bunch of firefighters that came up from South Florida to join us in the training. And then, you know, obviously there were law enforcement here in town. The law enforcement class wasn't even full to capacity, even though these, these, basically these classes were offered for free. I was, I was sharing as a bunch of first responders in town that were trying to get the message out. Um, and then Tim was saying even worse was the second day they had a lot of no shows. A lot of people that didn't come back. Now, Credit to everyone that did. I'm not talking about them at all, but there was, it was to a point where Tim was pissed off about it. <laughs> so what are you seeing as far as the agencies supporting training like that? And also the fear of looking stupid in front of your peers coming into individuals not being brave enough to attend a, a class like this? Yeah, you know, with the, the law enforcement courses, they're always smaller than the civilian courses. Now you have to, now, of course, part of that is overall numbers, right? The, the number of civilians versus the number of law enforcement officers, there's a huge difference in just the total population. So, you know, there is that dynamic to it. But, yeah, um, I don't think we've ever had a law enforcement or occupational course where everyone showed up the second day. Um, and it is hard, you know, um, police officers, by nature of their job, kind of like we said, have to put on that that front of, you know, being in control and being confident and, you know, carrying yourself a certain way. And I think it's hard for a lot of people to drop the ego and that's, that's everyone in life, but, you know, especially law enforcement officers, I think it's, you don't want to look bad in front of your peers. You don't want to have the appearance that you don't know how to do something. And it's just something that we have to, as a culture, get over, you know, you have to embrace training as the place that it's okay to fail, it's okay to look stupid, it's okay to admit that you don't know everything because none of us do. And ego will just, you know, destroy your potential. So, you know, we we really try and instill that in uh, the young officers, the young recruits to um, really change how they look at training. And, you know, it's it's not a competition with your peers. It's just about, you know, like we say, being a little bit better each day. And you have to swallow your pride to do that. Now, what have you seen as far as a trend with hiring practices? I've got, I've been very lucky. I've worked for basically four fire departments and volunteer for another one here locally. Um, and I saw an absolute concrete trend when there was a high bar set at the door from, from, you know, the, what you had to achieve to get hired. And then usually a 12 month crucible of, you know, high level training and, you know, uh, testing through the year created some amazing men and women in the fire service. Um, and I've seen the absolute polar opposite where there was no bar. You trip over it when you walk through the door and that, you know, dribbled into an absolutely shitty, you know, fire department. And I'll be very blatant about that, but it's absolutely true. So have you seen any trends as far as a, 
an aggressive bar, an aggressive hiring practice that then results in a better law enforcement agency? Um, yeah, that that's huge. Um, and that's something that law enforcement is struggling with right now, which is recruiting. I mean, you know, you look, you look around at what's going on and current events and, um, it's just not a time when a lot of people that historically would have gone into the profession, you know, are looking to do so. Um, you know, we haven't dealt with it, you know, where I'm at, um, as far as a huge drop in standards or anything like that. But, um, I, I agree completely, you know, I mean, I've seen that across the board with departments that drop their standards. I mean, you're, you're going to get the product, you know, that you, the product you put out is not going to be the same if you drop the standards. Now, do you think that there's any kind of linear relationship between the dropping of standards and some of these mistakes that we are seeing? Uh, you know, uh, uh, the, excuse me, <clears throat> the results we're seeing um, that law enforcement officers are making where it is resulting in, in civilian injury or death? Yeah, I mean, I think that could definitely be a factor. You know, um, it, it's hard for me to say for sure because, you know, when I see these these cases, um, you know, I don't always know their background as far as that person and they were hired. That that information, you know, usually isn't made public. So it's kind of hard to say for certain. But I mean, I can see that being, a you know, a major factor. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, that's the thing. I'm, I, I try and reverse and engineer all these different elements. Now, we're purely looking at law enforcement. So that's disregarding, you know, parenting and, and lack of mentorship in the community and lack of just purely obeying the officer when you get pulled over. So I mean, there's so many elements on the civilian side that need to be owned as well. But to me, in the fire service, you know, if someone dies, because we have a firefighter that can't make it up to the 20th floor of a building, then that's an absolute, you know, disgrace for our profession so i just see the same kind of parallels in in law enforcement if we start bringing the bar down then the likelihood of our teenage son getting shot reaching for his driver license or you know whatever it is increases because we're not attracting the best men and women to that profession yeah absolutely no i would agree with that all right well then again kind of a, a different tangent i know you started competing in mma so what took you down that road um so you know like i said i'd started in some striking martial arts i um had started doing jujitsu i um you know and and i started for like self-defense purposes just wanting to be able to you know have confidence to handle myself and uh protect my family things like that probably similar motivations to a lot of people and then obviously the physical benefits but um you know, I, I was an MMA fan. You know, I started watching the UFC and the early UFC and then got a little more involved. And, um, you know, it was a, it was just a test for me. You know, um, that was kind of the ultimate proving ground of, you know, is the stuff you're learning effective? Um, if I get into a fight, you know, not in a gym, not in a controlled environment, not against my friends and people I know, you know, how am I going to be able to apply what I know? So it was... Um, it was a test for me, you know, as a martial artist, I just wanted to, uh, you know, understand my reality and where I stood with, you know, what I've been learning for years. So is this something that you'll continue to do or was it a, you know, you had that experience and that was, that was good enough? 
Um, yeah, I've done a, I've never been, you know, a real consistent fighter. I've done a couple fights over the years. They've been, you know, pretty sporadic. Um, I may have one more left in me, but <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, I'm, uh, it takes a toll on the body and, uh, you know, I'm spending a lot of time teaching and actually enjoying that. So, uh, we'll see. But, uh, yeah, it, it, it I don't know. It's, it's one of those things like competition in general, you know, and I've done lots of other types of competition and judo or, you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu and sambo and all this other stuff. But, um, it, it's just something, I don't know how to describe it. You know, I, I get a kind of a, a fire in you, you know, that you just feel that desire to compete and test yourself. And sometimes it's just not there. You know, the, the desire to train and improve, never leaves but the desire to uh kind of get in there and prove it against someone else seems to come and go with me yeah you gotta definitely want to be in there yeah you got <laughs> yeah heart's not in it and your mind's not in it all the way then you, you definitely shouldn't be uh stepping up to the plate absolutely well you mentioned um judo and sambo and i've i've noticed that a lot in pretty much all the jiu-jitsu training i've done the kids classes always start standing up and i don't know if this is just purely a space thing you know because of the you know the dojos are somewhat small um and i watched my little boy who started jiu-jitsu at five years old you know and they're, and they're doing that and they're doing takedowns and they're you know doing double legs and throws and things but in the adult classes a lot of times we tend to start on our knees so yeah. what have you seen as far as the effectiveness of you know, wrestling, sambo, judo, and is that an element that's missed, you think, in a lot of the uh, jiu-jitsu arenas? Yeah, um, you know, I do think it's an element that in, in some jiu-jitsu schools is lacking, you know, the, the takedowns or they, you know, show a couple here and there, but they don't really get to practice it. Um, you know, I was very fortunate because my jujitsu it's funny because I, I think it kind of skews my view because you know like i told you when i started it was kind of more of a fight gym so um what i what i learned or what i was told is jujitsu was really kind of an incorporated mix of jujitsu wrestling and judo so i kind of just assumed that was all jujitsu because we wore jujitsu belts you know and uh put our geese on but you know later on i realized that the the wrestling and the judo was was incorporated a lot into that, you know, and my, one of my other uh, first instructors was, uh, had a judo background. So I kind of got that early on and, um, yeah, it's definitely something that I feel, feel like has given me a huge benefit on, uh, some people that maybe don't train the, the takedowns and the end up techniques as much. That's definitely kind of been a, a Achilles heel in some jujitsu circles. And is that you see that same application in law enforcement too? Because it seems like it would be a great skill to have as not just a police officer, I mean even a firefighter or a medic. We we get you know always the medical emergencies and um, people that are you know on meth or whatever it is, and you know we have to sometimes fight ourselves, even though that's not usually the the job description. What do you think of the, is the the application of the the grappling arts in law enforcement? Yeah, so. Um I think that, um, you know, you, you look at different things. Like if I'm trying to teach an officer how to defend themselves on the ground, right? Like, a, you know, a bigger, stronger person's overpowered them and they're, you know, taking them to the ground. You know, I'm teaching them more Brazilian jiu-jitsu concepts of, of framing and maintaining guard and how to reverse position or, you know, get back up to their feet. So, 
you know, jujitsu is heavy in the um, defensive side of, of grappling and ground fighting. And then obviously some of the joint locks and manipulations are, are useful for handcuffing and things like that. Uh, but we incorporate a lot of wrestling in, you know, if, if we're talking about just being able to get someone down to the ground and immobilize them, you know, where we can work into handcuffing positions, wrestling and judo are huge. Um, and they're, uh, they're the best place to look, in my opinion, for, you know, how to how to get someone on the ground and hold them on the ground, which is the first step of uh, getting someone under control a lot of the times in what we're dealing with. So I think they have a lot to offer. Absolutely. Well, I want to make sure that we don't miss the story. So speaking of grappling, tell me how you and Jeffro met. <laughs> yeah, so Jeffro, um, I met him um, trying to think of the exact year. It was probably around 2008. Um, I entered the Texas police games and um, we were in South Padre Island. So I decided to go enter the Texas police games. They had um, a grappling division, which was essentially Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu rule set. And uh, looking over across from me, you know, you got to understand in these tournaments, the the turnout's usually not as big. So sometimes the weight brackets, you know, get, get kind of uh, skewed together. So I had this behemoth giant Jeffro standing across <laughs> with uh, some tree trunk legs and that's uh that's how we made our introduction so we met in the uh in the final rounds of a grappling tournament in the police games beautiful well then how how did you find yourself in uh joining the sheepdog team um so i had met tim um he you know when he moved to austin he was doing some of his training camps here so i i had trained with him a little bit years earlier um when he was kind of prepping for some of his fights uh, wasn't one of his main training partners or anything like that, but we just worked out at the same gym and, you know, trained a little bit together. And then, um, you know, I just happened to come across when he did the first course. I think it was the first course, uh, with first or second was in Austin, Texas, you know, so I see an ad online, um, for him, like, Oh, look, they're shooting guns and they're grappling and they're fighting. I'm like, Oh, this looks right up my alley. You know, <laughs> like this looks like it's, it's really cool. So I actually, attended that um first austin course just as a participant and uh you know ended up getting to know him and uh started teaching for him shortly thereafter brilliant well I th we didn't explore this area enough and i need to go back to it with the quote-unquote shooting guns um i had lieutenant colonel dave grossman on the show a couple of times and he kind of referred to some of the yeah the, the poorer training basically and it, it was they weren't aware of what was going to happen because of this, but it was the kind of range qualifying. And I think in this, in one of the examples he used, they had to pick up their gra their brass after, and he referenced officers that have been killed because they discharged their weapon. And before they reloaded, they actually went and picked up their brass and were found dead with, with the uh, casings in their hand. Yeah. So I hear this a lot, you know, some agencies, they'll only, you know, fund, the ammunition that's in their pistol plus, you know, 12 rounds to qualify or whatever it is. So again, focusing on, on weapons specifically, tell me some of the worst case scenarios you've seen in some agencies. And then if you were king for a day, what weapons training would actually look like in law enforcement? Um, yeah, we, you know, we call those rangeisms. There's, there's things and there are certain things that because of safety, you just have to do on a range, especially when you have, multiple people. So 
but it, it got pretty bad at some point. You know, the, the way officers were doing reloads, you know, they're looking down at the ground and pointing their gun at the ground so that, you know, their gun is not going to go off and put a hole through the, you know, expensive roof that they have to repair. And, you know, we started recognizing over the years, like, hey, we're, we're forcing them to do things that are that are dangerous or slower or, you know, not the right technique just for the sake of safety. So I think you just have to, you know, again, put those protocols in place, really hit the, the safety briefings and make sure, you know, even if it requires more time just doing dry fire or getting people comfortable handling with firearms, getting them to a higher proficiency so that they can do those techniques in a safe manner. You know, we, we've done a pretty good job, at least, um, you know, the agency I'm at to uh, get rid of a lot of those training scars that were put in and kind of recognize the detriment, like you said, that those can have under the effects of a, a real world encounter. Um, as far as, you know, pistol training in general, I think law enforcement um, is doing pretty good overall as far as the mechanics of shooting, you know, how to physically manipulate a pistol, how to reload, how to aim, how to how to do the mechanics or the fundamentals of marksmanship are pretty good across the board. Um, you know, I think one thing that we could probably all do more of is a combination of, you know, stress inoculation training. So putting people under physical stress and then which is going to be the reality of a lot of these encounters so that they're able to, you know, do those same weapon manipulations um, under stress and then just scenario based training. You know, the, I think the more stress inoculation and the more scenario based training we do and actually put yourself in those situations, the better you're going to be able to respond in an actual event. Now, what about the, the trauma medicine side? I'm seeing a lot more police officers using things like tourniquet and, and that shooting we had in Compton, that incredible female officer that was applying a tourniquet to her partner while she was already shot in the arm and the jaw. What are you seeing as far as a kind of TCCC element in law enforcement? Yeah, that's that's a big um a big industry that you know wasn't around like when i when i went through the police academy you know uh 14 years ago or however long it was now um you know i learned how to do cpr and that was about the extent of my medical knowledge you know i wasn't i didn't know how to put on a tourniquet i didn't know how to put on a chest seal i didn't know how to pack um, you know, a gunshot. I didn't, I didn't know any of those things. And, you know, looking back, those would have come in useful, not fortunately, not for me, but, you know, having the equipment and having that knowledge, you know, a lot of times I would be the first one there to a shooting scene where, you know, people have been shot and I just didn't have the knowledge or equipment. And, you know, nowadays, uh, again, most departments are doing a really good job of, taking the lessons that, you know, our militaries learned in Iraq and Afghanistan and bringing a much more real world application of, you know, how to apply that self-aid buddy aid or TCCC. And I mean, I, I can say without a doubt that saved countless lives of just from your everyday person that an officer happens to be the first one there to, you know, like you said, in that situation, your friend or your buddy that's next to you. So that's been a huge success in my eyes. Now, what, with your agency, um, what are you? What's the kind of philosophy for the tactical medic? Because I've seen a, a gamut from 
you know, that, that person sits outside the building and they're kind of in a warm zone while everyone else goes through to, you know, they're, they're the back end of an entry team. And to me, it seems like a, you know, a firefighter medic that going in with, with a law enforcement agency that has been, you know, sworn in. So he's carrying a sidearm seems to be the best thing for me. Not that that's person, that person's going to be first through the door, but that they are actually in that environment. So they are immediately able to render care, but they also have been given, you know, the, the defensive element where God forbid it goes wrong that they are able to protect himself. So what do you use in your agency? And is that what you would describe as the, as the best version of the tactical medic? Um, so it, it depends on the situation, you know, like for example, our, um, you know, our tactical teams, they have, um, you know, medics that are assigned to them, uh, they're TAC medics that um, if they're doing a high-risk warrant service or, you know, a hostage situation or a barricaded subject, you know, they have medics that are equipped with body armor that are not armed, but there's also, you know, a, a heavily armed SWAT team there and they stay like in the Bearcat or an armored vehicle, you know, um, until they're needed. Um, but we've also been in very recently kind of introducing um, – a different concept and it's something I've been a part of, um, you know, downtown dealing with, which is, um, what we call a rescue task force. So they'll basically put, uh, two officers with either a firefighter and a paramedic or two firefighters or a paramedic and, you know, a firefighter, any combination of those two. And the two officers will provide basically armed security so that um, the rescue task force can respond directly to the scene of a, like a mass casualty event or a shooting or a stabbing or some other type of uh, situation, you know, without staging and, and letting officers clear the scene first. But we haven't locally um, had armed paramedics or firefighters. Uh, you know, that's just, I don't know if uh, I have heard other places doing that. That's just something that locally we have not, I haven't seen or um, heard of anyone doing. Right. Well, then segueing off that, we talked about tactical medicine. We talked about, you know, unarmed, you know, combatives and then weapons training. So for people listening, what are the different courses that Sheepdog Response offers? Um, so we offer our uh, level one course, which is for uh, anyone that wants to attend, you know, regardless of experience level, anything like that, you're going to learn the, the fundamentals of close quarters fighting and the fundamentals of marksmanship and, and shooting on both spectrums. Then we have a level two course, uh, Sheepdog Level 2 builds on that and kind of adds, uh, you know, some more dynamics in. We start getting more into movement on the range and um, a lot of fun stuff there and, and build on the um, – Build on the fundamentals of close quarters, fighting over weapons. We, we do more striking. We do more drills um, on our feet and things like that. So that they both just build on each other in the level two course. It's a lot of fun. And then um, obviously the medical course, we have uh, Matt Smith teaching that. So he offers a, a really good medical course. And then uh, carbine. We have a carbine course. If you, you know, have a rifle for home defense or when you carry obviously occupational, then it's a, a good single day course on how to run a uh, carbine. Beautiful. So while we're on the subject then, where can people find that information? Uh, check out sheepdogresponse.com. 
uh, also on Facebook and Instagram, uh, Sheepdog Response. Yeah, and then also the the YouTube library that you're amassing now is is incredible. Oh yeah, that YouTube channels. I mean, man, it's the amount of information they just give away on there is uh, quite a bit. So there's a ton of uh, golden information on that site. Yeah, I think it's something that people misunderstand. Obviously, Tim's got his kind of public PR persona. But yeah. the core element of what you guys do is that you're just wanting to improve, you know, safety in the law enforcement side and then safety in the in the civilian side too. So when I think when people go and they see, like you said, the free content and actually take a class, they'll realize the the connection that you guys have with the communities they come to and that you're hoping that that's going to resonate out and make that that environment safer so i can't personally recommend it enough and for everyone listening if it's coming even close to you you need to sign up yeah it's it's truly eye-opening for most people and and most people leave with a really positive experience of uh motivation you know and, and how they want to proceed with their life after that it's it's pretty cool absolutely well just kind of circling back i want to touch on one more area before we do some closing questions we've been focusing on law enforcement and i try and every single thing that we talk about in this this podcast i try and look at it from from two elements you know and this particular conversation is obviously the the officer and the agency but it's the the civilians as well and i've seen some great um community placing uh, excuse me community placing um projects where it's greg craig oh my goodness i'm stepping all over my words craig who now me or yeah. or you know the the nypd boxing club in new york uh pat russo's club there are some really great mentoring um, projects where they're reaching out to the youth of these communities and trying to bring them in to a path that's going to be positive for them rather than negative. So what are some of the the, the great um, examples of that that you've seen in your career and that people can mirror and try and be part of the change on that element? Yeah, you know, we have those programs locally where, um, you know, the, the boxing with the youth, things like that. Um, you know, I, I don't think it has to be any one particular sport because it can be anything. Um, but like you said, just just having those interactions, those positive interactions, you know, by by nature of what we do, you know, a lot of times when people come into law enforcement, it's when they're, you know, in some type of traumatic incident, you know, not a good time of their day. It's not a good time of their life. It's things are going bad. And, you know, by by nature of what we do, you know, and kids see that, too. And we're um you know, dealing with people. And if that's their only interaction with law enforcement, then there's obviously going to be, you know, a negative connotation. So I think, like you said, you know, going out into the community and whether it's, whether it's boxing, whether it's playing football, whether it's playing baseball or whatever it is, just, you know, reaching those kids on a personal level and, you know, getting to know people outside of the uniform, you know, just getting to know people as a person and, that's going to go a long way in, uh, you know, just building trust and building understanding for the future. Brilliant. Yeah. And I've, in the fire service, a good friend of mine, Chris Hickman, has, has done a great job in our city here in Ocala of creating a mentoring program for the fire service. So really reaching into those communities that maybe 
wouldn't think they would be able to be a firefighter and maybe cost was a, you know, a barrier to entry and creating this free program where as long as you show up at this time, we will train you how to be a fire cadet. Um, what have you seen as far as the um, efficiency of that within law enforcement reaching out to to a young man or a young woman that might find themselves pulled towards, you know, a, a criminal element and being able to steer them towards law enforcement instead? Yeah, you know, that's one of those things. It's you don't see the progress overnight, right? You know, um, a lot of those success stories, and I've heard a lot of them, you know, from uh, kids talking about, you know, years back, their interaction and uh, some of those type of programs and kind of how it, it shaped their view and how it led to some of the choices they make. But it's, you know, it's just not something you see overnight. You know, we, we all want that instant gratification, instant success. So I think it's just one of those programs, you know, you kind of have to trust that even though it may not seem um, like you're seeing the results right away, like it'll pay off in the end, you know, in the long run. Absolutely. Okay, well then, moving to some closing questions. The first one I'd like to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend that can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely different? Hmm. book I would like to recommend. Um, Grossman stuff is obviously good. Um, I'm trying to think of something that's... Uh, what is... Um, David Goggins, that was uh, the last book I read. Um, you Can't Hurt Me? Yeah, there you go. I, mean, I know that's probably cliche because everyone's heard of it by now. But uh, <laughs> that, was, uh, that was definitely a good one. So I'll, I'll drop that one. Beautiful. Yeah, he's supposed to be coming on at some point. I'm still waiting for, for a date. And I think that he's writing another book. So I'm sure they're aligning it with that. But hopefully one day I will get to speak to him personally. Yeah, very motivational. I took a lot of... Uh, a lot of little tidbits on that on, you know, the mental aspects of, uh, you know, mental toughness and things like that. Absolutely. And not being defined by your past either. Yeah. All right. What about uh, a movie and or a documentary? Hmm. I'm going to go with Cobra Kai. If y'all haven't seen that, it's <laughs> pretty on point. That was my last uh, Netflix journey, taking me back to uh, my Karate Kid childhood days. Absolutely. We binge watched that when it came out. Now, did you have a, a moment, you talked about the the movies when you were young, and I had exactly the same thing, you know, the Shokusugi, Van Damme, you know, all those ones. Did you have a moment where you're like, oh, shit, I can actually do those moves better than the people? And you look back in your old movies, and you're like, you're kind of almost disappointed now? Yeah, oh, definitely. <laughs> oh, I got that, you know, I can do that, so... Part of the, the mysticism goes away, but it's still pretty cool. It is, it is. I can't do splits between two chairs, so Van Damme's got me on that one. Yeah, they, uh, they still got me on a lot of things. <laughs> All right, next question. Is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Uh, have you talked to Dennis yet? Dennis Jones? I haven't, and he's on my list too. Him and Travis Lloyd, I think, would both be great. Yeah, Den Dennis and Travis Lloyd, they'd both be on point. Dennis is a, a funny guy when you get through his Boston accent, so uh, <laughs> he'd be good to bring on. Beautiful. Well, I want to keep bringing on Sheepdog People, too, because I think it's a great, great you know class that you put on, so that would be fantastic. All right, so the last question before you kind of underline where people can find Sheepdog and find you personally, what do you do to decompress when you're not training and protecting the community that you serve? 
Um, yeah, that's a huge part of it, right? Because we kind of have that hypervigilance at work. So I'm, I'm all about health and wellness. Um, jujitsu is a big part of it for me. You know, it's very therapeutic, just, um, getting on the mats, breaking a sweat, you know, having that hard, good training session, um, is a huge, probably beyond anything else for me. Um, but you know, I do, uh, I like to get outdoors, mountain bike, hiking, um, yoga, yoga is good for me. Um, swimming, just something where I'm out in nature, getting away from things, uh, is probably how I keep myself sane most weeks. Brilliant. Well, one area I forgot to kind of throw in when we were discussing before, but I talk about this a lot is the sleep deprivation element. And Dave Grossman talks about it. And it's, it's a huge passion project for me because in our profession specifically, the average work week for a firefighter is about 56 hours a week. So it's, it's a chronically sleep deprived profession. Now, when I look at law enforcement, I think about some of the intersection wrecks that we've seen, some of the mistakes when it comes to, you know, shooting someone who was actually unarmed, reaching, for example, for their driver's license in the glove box. I always play devil's advocate and also, you know, think, well, what, um, part did sleep deprivation play in this as well what have you seen of that element the sleep deprivation and just the allowing time for rest and recovery so these officers can be on point when they show up to work yeah that's um you know i went i went through a training course uh it's been a few months now but where they they talked about that and you probably know more about it than me but you know how basically certain amounts of sleep deprivation they compared it to a blood alcohol level and showed you know how the impairment starts to happen, you know, gradually and how significant it can give, can get. And, you know, I mean, it's a scientific thing that you're not going to make good decisions when you're in a situation like that, or at very least it's going to affect your decision-making or your um, cognitive ability. So um, for officers that are on shift work, that's a constant battle. Um work you know i spent five years working on a night shift where i was working essentially 9 p.m to 7 a.m which is just not normal business hours and uh you know after a few years of that it yeah it took a real toll on me and um you know you're just chronically fatigued and there's there's different you know things i've heard proposed like one of the things you know if we recognize for example officers that work a night shift that, you know, potentially have court during the day and, and, you know, all these things that are just going to make it logistically difficult to get enough sleep. Um, you know, why not have, um, like a lunch break where they take, you know, we have a dark room in a substation where they can, you know, just keep their cell phone on or something like that and let them take a 30 minute power nap, you know, as opposed to just going through their entire shift and being, you know, fatigued and and tired and stressed out you know for the last four hours like they'd be more productive overall if we allowed something like that yeah i agree or even i mean the work week for the fire service you know my, my whole goal is to to reduce it get it back to no you know closer to the average civilian work week and i think even nursing you know doctors uh law enforcement yeah, any of us can function working in a store for 40 hours a week. We've all done it when we were younger, probably. Yeah. But when you're asking people to make life or death decisions, should we hold them to that 40-hour work week? 
Or do we have to look at a smaller work week so that we can allow them to get the rest and recovery so they can be fully functional when they go back to work? Yeah, I think that's a good point. There's a, a lot of truth to that. All right. And one more thing that I meant to, to stick in there as well. I always ask my law enforcement guests. I've had people from LAPD, for example, who ride two to a car. And then obviously a lot of the country rides one to a car. It seems like that model shifted from two to a car to let's get more cars on the road. So we'll have a single person. When I see so many of these videos, whether it's again, the civilian that, that, um, you know, is hurt or killed or whether it's the law enforcement officer is hurt or killed. Many of these examples, you can't help but think if there were two officers in the car at the same time, the chances of that unfolding the way it did may have been reduced. So what is your um, uh, philosophy on, you know, the, I'm not mandating, but, but the standard being two to a car in law enforcement agencies around the country? Yeah, um, we, we don't require two. Um, we have single officer. That's what I did most of my patrol career um, was by myself. And I definitely see the benefit, you know, and, and we would ride as a two officer unit sometimes. And it definitely gave you more confidence, you know, sometimes going off into a situation, just immediately having that backup. And I understand the logistical concerns, you know, there's, they'll point out, well, more cars is higher visibility, you know, um, it, it looks like there's more officers, higher presence. And then, you know, for example, if one officer has to make an arrest or do something, then it's not tying up two officers down at the jail. That way there's more officers available to assist others in respond calls. So there's arguments for both. What, what I kind of found um, was some of it is preference. You know, some people just don't want to ride with someone else. But even if you ride as a single officer, then have a running buddy like – I would always have um, a shift mate or someone I worked with. And even though we weren't riding in the same car, we would essentially stick together and, you know, take our calls and, and make our stops and do things together. So, you know, even though we're not in the same car, we're able to, uh, you know, have that immediate backup element, which, like you said, can be a lot safer. So I think whether you have one officer in a car or two, um, you can kind of make it work either way. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I'm obviously there's this whole knee jerk defund the police element. And I see, you know, the, the polar opposite. Most of these agencies probably need more staff, more training. So they need more funding. And we, I think we can make the streets safer through other areas. I mean, one thing I talk about, and I flog like a dead horse, but is the drug policy. Imagine if addiction wasn't a crime and we didn't arrest addicts, you know, imagine if prostitution wasn't a crime and we didn't arrest Johns and hookers that they actually had a safe place where they could go and do business like grown-ups. You know, I think that those are the kind of things that we need to make the streets safer. And in the meantime, support law enforcement with better training, better um, staffing, so that when they respond to things that they truly should be responding to, now they have the manpower and the equipment to to mitigate it, hopefully protecting their own lives and the people that they're arresting. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, then the very last question, then the, the closing question, if people want to find you specifically, how do they find you online? Uh, so my Instagram is the real gray man. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram. Uh, that's probably the best spot where I uh, post training content, things like that. Some cool videos from time to time. 
Beautiful. Well, Travis, I want to say thank you so much. I know it's kind of late in the evening and you've, you know, been working all day, but I appreciate you taking the time. I, I love, you know, everyone that Sheepdog and what you guys are doing. I think it's something that we as civilians need to do more of. I think it's something that the law enforcement element needs to do more of. So thank you, A, for being part of the solution and B, for taking the time to come on the show today. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was an awesome conversation. I really, really enjoyed it.